0: Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of PNW Currents, a new in depth podcast from the Northwest Progressive Institute that brings together thinkers from Washington, Oregon, and Idaho to discuss issues for advancing progressive causes across our region and beyond. I'm your host, Kaya Berndt, and thank you very much for joining us. At the Northwest Progressive Institute, we believe that good legislation and good policy don't pass by accident. Were the ideas from increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour to Medicare for all to wider availability of rooftop solar, these sound strategies if they are to become a reality. At NPI, we believe research is the key to identifying winning strategies, while advocacy is the key to implementing them. That's why we're engaged in both. You can learn more about our insightful research, imaginative advocacy, and our history by visiting nwprogressive.org. Again, that is nwprogressive.org. I will give you that information again at the end of this podcast. So our topic for this inaugural episode is the Pacific Northwest legislatures. Unlike Congress, which meets year-round and makes laws for the entire country, our region's three state legislatures are only in session seasonally. With Washington and Idaho's 2021 sessions recently having concluded and Oregon session entering its final weeks, it's a good time to discuss what's been happening in our state houses. Joining me today to assess the legislative landscape are Joan McCarter from Idaho, Kari Chisholm from Oregon, and Crystal Fincher from Washington. Welcome to all three of you. It's good to be here. Wonderful. It's it's wonderful to have you as well. So uh, before we dive into our discussion, let's do our introductions so our listeners can get a sense of the expertise and experience on this distinguished panel. Joan, would you be so kind as to kick us off?
1: I am Joan McCarter. I write for Daily Coast, usually about national stuff, but I've lived in Washington and Oregon and was born in Idaho, live here now. So I, I sort of have all states covered.
0: All right, wonderful. Well, Kari, over to you.
2: Hi, I'm Kari Chisholm. Uh, I'm in Portland, Oregon. I am a political consultant here. Uh, I work for campaigns uh, and candidates all over the country, but uh, of course, based in in Oregon, got a lot of clients here in Oregon. For many, many years, I was the um, publisher and editor at Blue Oregon, which is still online, but, uh, you know, pretty more abundant these days.
0: That brings us to Crystal.
3: Yes, I'm Crystal Fincher. I'm the founder and principal of Fincher Consulting, a full service political consulting firm. We handle uh, candidates and campaigns up and down the West Coast and just really enjoy building and assembling power within underrepresented communities and, and leveraging that to really bring transformational change.
0: All right. And I am Kaya, your host. I'm a member of the Northwest Progressive Institute, as well as a student at Central Washington University. I've done radio in the past. I'm really eager to kind of move over into into podcasting. Let's get started. Let's begin with a recap of what happened this winter and spring. So, Crystal, can you summarize the highs and lows of the 2021 Watches and State Legislative Session for our listeners?
3: Well, there's a lot that happened, but I guess I would start to say this was, first of all, happening in the middle of a pandemic. And uh, especially going into the session, very unclear about the economic outlook, thinking that we were going to have a multi-billion dollar deficit. And, And what was very different about this session is that we never in Washington entertained the conversation of austerity. Which is a very big deal and very different than what we saw in the last great recession uh, of 2008 that took a long time to recover from where the conversation only was wow we're going to have to slash and cut a bunch of stuff mainly social services and the social safety net and and so going in the tone was very different and a lot of that was due to a a large crop of freshmen and uh, second term uh legislators who uh, are a lot more diverse than we have traditionally seen in our legislature and who were really in a different um, generation of of growing up and the conversation was just different as they were campaigning and coming in. So the focus was really on how can we take care of people, understanding that uh, we were gonna be getting some money from the federal government and and how to best distribute that. And then on the table was also a lot of progressive revenue. Washington state actually had the most regressive tax um, system in the country. We don't have an income tax here. And so a lot of our taxation unfairly burdened the um, lower income people, people of color, those who can least afford to bear that burden were were tasked with carrying most of it. And then we have over 100 billionaires who live in Washington state who were getting off nearly scot-free. And so that was a huge conversation coming in to say that we have to make our taxation system more fair, one of the biggest accomplishments was that they pushed through in the legislature and passed the capital gains tax, which has been a priority of progressives for years and had previously not been able to make it through even in democratic uh, legislatures with the democratic governorship. So, so this session, not only was a lot of revenue put towards child care social safety net, a lot of programs that undocumented immigrants or even documented immigrants couldn't qualify for in terms of COVID relief and job unemployment relief. The state stepped in and said, we'll actually take care of that and make sure people aren't falling through the cracks. Um, There was just a, a lot that happened to take care of people, working families, tax credits, where the state stepping in and saying, we're not letting people fall through the cracks. We're actually making an effort to make sure everyone has access to health care, childcare, unemployment, and and you know, even working on the early end before the federal eviction moratorium took place, they implemented that in the States. So just a completely different conversation in that area. And also made uh gains in terms of climate policy and moving closer towards our goals with a low carbon fuel standard and they also passed the climate commitment act which is a cap and trade system similar to California so progressives made more progress in this session than than we have seen before and that was really the big headline of this session
0: thank you very much for that thorough recap crystal it really does sound like this session, there was a lot more focus on getting a more a, a more muscular federal roles to ensure that people didn't fall through some of those cracks that were only widened by COVID. So thank you very much for that. I'd like to move on to Joan. The Idaho legislature is also done with its work for the time being, but what went down in Boise was markedly different than what went down in Olympia, wasn't it?
1: Yes, extremely, um, just starting with the fact that we're not actually officially out of session. The Senate adjourned sine die. The House refused to, says that the session can come back in before December 31st if they deem it so. Um, we've never had that situation happen before, so we don't know if that is actually true. If the House can bring it back, that might end up being in the courts if they try it. So that kind of sets the stage for everything that happened in the state this session. It was bad. It was chaotic. It was um, pushing all bounds of unconstitutionality. And it, in the way that COVID helped clarify stuff progressively in Washington state, it clarified just how fractured Idahoans are from their government. Most of the fights were cultural fights. The the main response to COVID among our legislatures was to deny it and to fight any possibility of mask mandates. Setting up a power battle with the governor, which he, I I would call it a draw. He conceded on some things, won on some things. Um, None of it really helped advance the cause for Idahoans. The main, (laughs) I guess you could call it an accomplishment, um, was a new funding structure for transportation. So rather than address global warming, they've decided we're going to put millions and millions more in roads and bridges. Mm -hmm. They rejected federal funding for education, $40 million that was going to go for covid Testing in our schools, they rejected, because as one Republican legislature said, children can't get COVID, so why test? It was more of an excuse to keep kids out of school than to keep them safe. They rejected $6 million in grant funding from the Trump administration for early childhood education. They cut 25 million out of higher education, specifically 1.5 million from Boise State, because of a false claim forwarded by the Idaho Freedom Foundation, our sort of think tank on the right, that uh, manufactured a story about a, a cultural studies class at Boise State in which one student was singled out for being white. There was an investigation. It was proven untrue. But still, Boise State lost $1.5 million in funding, and the critical race theory and socialist indoctrination conspiracy theories won the day there. So that's pretty much how things ended up in Idaho. It's, it's ugly here.
0: Wow. Goodness. It sounds, it sounds like it. Yeah. There's, I mean, and we could, we could dedicate a whole episode to <laughs> what's happening in Idaho alone. I guess my quick question that I did have was regarding Idaho being done, but not really done. Yeah. What's the benefit of that or what were they trying to gain from, from that?
1: I really, really don't know. It's, it's created quite, a lot of confusion here, in fact, made for a final week in the House that was pretty crazy because they had to enact a bunch of emergency legislation saying, even though we are not, we haven't officially ended the session, we're still funding all of these programs after July 1st. Because our Constitution says, if you haven't finished your session 60 days before the fiscal year, then... The government shuts down. So they had to pass a bunch of emergency legislation to try to cover that. It's it's left us really not knowing what's going to happen. They sort of, the House wanted to keep their option open in case, I don't know what, and another emergency, perhaps. If, if we have really, really bad COVID numbers, which is entirely possible because we've got one of the lowest vaccination rates in the nation this would be their way of keeping Governor little from trying to declare another emergency so they could rush back in and stop him that's as near as I can tell the theory behind it
0: It sounds like it's really tough to be a, be a progressive in Idaho right now
1: always but yeah this is this is the worst legislature I can I can remember in the state and that is that's saying an awful lot for Idaho and I didn't even get into the rape allegations oh gosh. We we had a Republican member who was forced to resign because he allegedly raped a 19-year-old intern. And while he resigned, the Republican representative, a woman who outed her, who doxed her, hasn't been forced to resign. So that's, that's another issue that's sort of hanging out there waiting to be resolved.
0: Yay, Idaho! And then finally, Kari, Oregon's legislature is still meeting in Salem. So what's happened so far and what might we expect to see in the final few weeks before adjournment?
2: Yeah, adjournment is generally uh, scheduled to end around the end of June. We start a little later uh, in early February, so we go a little longer. Uh, The big question going into this legislative session was, will there be a legislative session? You know, the last two sessions, legislators have walked out, Republican legislators have walked out. Uh, And because Oregon has supermajority quorum requirements, we're one of only five states with a supermajority quorum requirement, those walkouts effectively ended uh, and did uh, end the legislative sessions. Uh, And I think, actually, there's a little glimmer of hope that actually shame might actually be influencing Republicans for once. Uh, They they have not walked out. Uh, A number of Republicans have... Indicated they don't don't plan to walk out. You know, one thing that happened a year ago was when they walked out, uh, it stymied a a bipartisan agreement brought together, uh, brought together a timber industry and the environmentalists on a wildfire protection and relief bill. They stymied that bill. It was killed in the walkout. And then, of course, we had the greatest wildfire season in in decades. Uh, And uh, it really, of course, impacted rural Oregon. Uh, And so this time we don't appear to be having a walkout. Uh, And much to the frustration of some of the most radical uh, extremist groups, uh, particularly those who support uh, gun extremism, uh, they're frustrated. Um, We did, in fact, pass uh, a gun safety storage bill as a result. Um, We are making progress uh, on a whole series of police accountability and uh, racial reconciliation uh, bills. Uh, There's a climate bill that's advancing that appears to be on the verge uh, of of getting uh, passage. Um, And uh, we just passed this last week uh, a nine point three billion dollar schools budget. And uh, and so it's headed headed to the governor's desk. So for the first time in quite a few years, Oregon is actually uh, making progress, uh, which is exciting to see. Um, One last little note I will will note for you. Uh, We also, uh, in Oregon, uh, in the middle of the session, we had a resignation uh, from State Representative Diego Hernandez. um, And then he was replaced. Uh, There was a a sexual harassment allegations. Uh, He was replaced. In fact, by a woman uh, who was one of those who had filed a restraining order against him, a domestic violence restraining order, Uh, Andrea Valderrama, uh, the chair of the David Douglas School District School Board, uh, a policy advocate for the ACLU of Oregon, is now a state rep. And in addition to that being itself a good thing, that meant that Oregon's House of Representatives is now 50-50 male and female. Uh, which is of course a, a great benchmark uh, for for Oregon to finally hit that mark. So um, it's been quite exciting. Last thing I'll mention: uh, the breaking news on Friday night. Uh, State Representative Mike Neerman, uh, Republican from from Independence, Oregon, um, uh, you know, has, he's been accused. He's seen on videotape uh, opening a door uh, in late December, allowing protesters to flood the Capitol. They were pushed out by police. Uh, his his resignation has been called for. Uh, He has been indicted. Uh, uh, That is a crime. Um, And on Friday night, what we got was actually a videotape of him about five days prior to the incident in which he says to a room full of people, here's the plan. We're calling it Operation Hall Pass. If you text this phone number someone will go to that door and open the door for you. He, of course, in the, he jokingly says, if you ask me about it, I'll deny it. And that number I gave you isn't my cell phone. It's just a random string of digits. Uh, but uh, of course, uh, once again, uh, folks are calling for his resignation immediately. And if not resignation, then expulsion. So uh, stay tuned for that.
0: Well, thank you very much, uh, Joe and Kari and Crystal, for those recaps. As I said, we could easily devote entire episodes to any number of the issues that you've brought up, but for this, uh, for this initial podcast, I want to kind of focus on a handful of key issues that our listeners are really curious about, and really asking questions about. You know, the first one does have to do with budgeting. We all kind of touched on that a bit. So I'd like to get your takes on how the pandemic and the recent presidential election have influenced the trajectory of our state's budgets, especially with public health. In any legislative session, putting together a budget is the foremost must-do item. So how did you feel your state did this year with respect to putting together its operating capital and transportation budgets? Joan, since you mentioned that, you know, it was kind of a mixed bag because it did at the same time ignore climate issues, you did mention that Idaho had made some progress there. Would you like to get us started?
1: It's good and bad progress again. Um, What they decided to do was devote a larger proportion of sales tax funding to transportation. Um, I should back this up a little bit and say Idaho is in a good fiscal situation. We've got the largest rainy day fund that we've ever had, even with turning away federal money. It's where they're choosing to put that funding. And what they're deciding to do with it, not necessarily going to education, particularly young kids' education. Um, Sending back the $6 million of federal grant money for preschool. They rejected calls, statewide calls, for um, full-day kindergarten. So we don't even have that. But they did devote more than they ever have to transportation funding, which is good. We need it. Our, Our roads are in bad shape. At the same time, they didn't address critical issues like property tax relief. They didn't address the sales tax on groceries, which has been a problem for decades that they keep saying is only temporary, but they keep not getting rid of. We have a 6% sales tax on groceries, which of course is extremely regressive. They changed property taxes and an exemption for People who are widowed, elderly, disabled, um, and cut about 4,000 seniors out of the possibility of getting that tax break from the state, putting their ability to stay in their homes in jeopardy, while at the same time giving income tax breaks to the wealthiest. So it's sort of a microcosm of what national Republicans are doing, what we would see the House of House of Representatives do if they were entirely Republican. That's what's happened in the Idaho legislature. While we're awash, essentially, in money right now, there's plenty of funding. Um, They're building up that rainy day fund. They're not going to use it, and they're particularly not going to use it on education, on housing, on making life better for the low income among us. Uh, you know, on the one hand, it's fantastic that there's going to be this transportation funding because that means jobs. Um, unfortunately, it means not necessarily highways jobs since we are a right to work state and the federal minimum wage is the minimum wage in Idaho. But people will be working. But the major problem that we're facing right now is a housing crisis. I saw something in the past four years, Boise's housing prices have increased 74% in four years. It's, it's ridiculous. And in a lot of our communities like McCall, which is a resort, Sun Valley, Coeur all of these resort communities, people can't afford to live anymore. We're seeing a lot of people, particularly the pandemic really, really <laughs> increased this. People coming from out of state, they can work from home, they can work from anywhere. They sell a house in California and they can buy one very cheaply here. And kick somebody out. And we're also seeing a huge, huge conversion of what had been regular rentals to Airbnbs.
0: I would like to turn to you, Crystal, in respect to Washington's operating capital transportation budgets. How do you think that we did this year?
3: In terms of the operating and capital budgets, I think we did. I think we did great. I think we did better than we have really done in decades. I think that certainly going back to the conversation of we, we didn't entertain austerity and it really was how do we strengthen our social safety net? And they certainly delivered on that even more was really foundationally ad- addressing our lack of an income tax. So there have been different types of taxes that are more progressive than what is currently in place. And certainly the capital gains tax is one of them. Now, that is not a tax on wages. It's, it's a tax purely on gains from the sale of, of stocks or bonds or, you know, investments. And so purely on that and purely above a, a really high threshold. So it's only affecting a very small percentage of Washington residents, a t- under 1% of Washington residents, but it brings in a huge amount of revenue because, again, we have over 100 billionaires with a B, in Washington state, which is a lot more than people thought and were aware of. And it really does make people wonder, are billionaires housing themselves here because they can escape taxation, which just makes income inequality worse for everyone everywhere? And so, you know, looking at that and passing that was very big. However, it faces a legal challenge. And Republicans have been signaling the entire time our former Republican Attorney General Rob McKenna is leading with his law firm a legal challenge to this saying it's really an income tax. So this is going to go through that whole thing and it's going to be very impactful whether this gets upheld or overturned. You know, indications are it should be upheld, but We will see what our state Supreme Court ultimately has to say about it. But this could be the key to starting to implement more types of taxes, both at the state level and at the city levels, because there's been a lot of indications that cities, especially on the more progressive side of things, like in Seattle, are willing to implement these taxes. And and many cities have been scared away by, well, that could be an income tax, so we can't really do that. We're afraid it could be overturned. So putting getting this precedent set is very important. Finally having the legislature willing to move forward and say, you know what, we have to hash this out. We're going to have to have this fight if we're going to be able to get to a point where we're not relying on regressive taxes and fees to fund everything in the state, which really creates just a, a lack of funds for everything in the state and an increase in fees, an increase in sales tax. And, and we just can't continue that way. It has made everything worse. It continues to widen the inequities that, that were you know really exacerbated during this pandemic. And, and it's just not sustainable for so much of our community. So, so that in terms of uh, the budgets was a huge accomplishment. Now our transportation budget, so we are currently in the middle of having a big conversation among more progressive Democrats and more moderate Democrats about how we need to handle our transportation budget. There certainly are a lot of people, myself included, Transportation is the number one source of of pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. We have to make progress on clean transportation options and further funding that. And that's a huge priority for a lot of people. Multimodal elements, investments in rail, in transit, in clean fuels and energy. Meanwhile, there's another element who enjoy a lot of chairships in, in our House and especially in our Senate, Who are saying, you know what, we have some highway expansion bills on the docket and some road expansion bills, and and really not taking into account the environmental component, how we're going to be able to breathe and thrive, and, and especially for communities of color and lower income communities who bear a disproportionate impact of that pollution created by our current transportation modes. It is urgent because that is directly tied to Cases of asthma, life expectancy, heart disease, and more studies come out about this. So this is a really big topic of conversation in Washington state
0: right now. Thank you for that. And we are going to touch on climate action in just a moment. And I agree with you. I think you're very correct in that transportation and infrastructure and climate are intertwined. You can't really make legislation about one without considering the other. As far as the capital gains tax, sounds like that is really beneficial that's is that something that that other states like Oregon or Idaho could potentially benefit from is something or a kind of a similar structure
3: absolutely and a lot of states already have that implemented states like South Carolina and others this isn't an odd concept it is presented as an odd concept by republicans in washington much like raising the minimum wage or or other elements like hey we do better if we subsidize college for people we do better with a lot of those things that are happening in many other states and you know college subsidizing is happening in washington state but but they always like to try and reframe the conversation saying this is extreme it is you know a burden it's just another income tax and it's a slippery slope be careful so we better not take any steps to prevent from taking all the steps Meanwhile, people are suffering under this current system. So I certainly think it's something that other states, if they haven't already implemented it, which a number of them have, they could potentially look at it because this polls actually really well in Washington. Tax used to be a scary word for a lot of people, and Republicans used to be able to, in Washington state, wield the word tax and scare everyone away. This capital gains tax polled across the state at over 65% popularity. With the public. This isn't controversial among Washington residents. This is really caught up in the culture war. We're just going to call it a tax and say it's scary and a way to just avoid higher income people from paying a fair share.
0: All right. Thank you very much, Crystal, for that incredible insight. Kari, I do want to move on to you in regards to your thoughts on how Oregon has been doing as far as state budgeting
2: goes. You bet. Uh, and just to answer that question, Oregon does have a capital gains tax, as does Idaho. So, so Washington is one catching up with the, uh, the other states uh, in this regard. You know, you really can't talk about budgeting in Oregon without talking about the kicker, which is a term that a lot of folks around the country will, will wonder what the heck we're talking about. Oregon has a very unique law, which is that if the state economist is wrong, about the estimate that they have made as to state revenues by more than 2%. In other words, if revenues come in more than 2% more than what the state economists predicted, then all that money goes back to taxpayers. Well, you know, 2%, I mean, that's like hitting the, the, the middle of the dartboard every single time. And if you think about it, the state economists made a prediction in the summer of 2019 as to what the tax revenues would be over the next two years. Well, in the summer of 2019 The world looked like a very different place. We had no idea a pandemic was in the offing. And then we had no idea that there would be massive trillions of dollars of federal funding and and subsidies and and stimulus payments to combat that pandemic. The idea that the state economist would, over that two-year period, split the dart in the middle of the bullseye uh, perfectly is insane. Uh, Our kicker law is completely insane. And so what the just most recent uh, uh, estimate that came out about a week and a half ago uh, is that we're going to have brought in well over a billion dollars out of a 24 billion dollar budget, about a billion dollars more revenue than was anticipated two years ago. And of course, what happened was a year ago, we thought, oh, my gosh, everything's going to collapse or, you know, lay everyone off or, uh, cut all the funding for everything. But then the the stimulus money came in and, and in fact, Oregon has done very well revenue wise. So we're looking uh, down the barrel of a one point four billion dollar kicker money sent back to taxpayers, the bulk of which will go to the highest income folks in Oregon, which, you know, it's just it's a tragedy. You know, we should be spending this money to support folks or putting it in the, in the bank for a rainy day. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of listening to Joan thinking, boy, you know, you've got this rainy day fund in Idaho, which is sort of a, for an anti-tax anti government state, is rather impressive compared to what we're doing here in Oregon, where we just ship it all back out. And then when the economy comes in under, you know, when when the revenues come in 2% below estimates, we don't claw it all back from taxpayers. We, we go into austerity mode. So that's that's the the challenge that we're we're facing ahead uh, here in order with the budget, the current budget they're still working that out. They have until June 27th to to pass it uh, for the next biennium. As you can imagine, we're looking at trying to make very strong investments in education, uh, some in transportation. Certainly trying to you know assuming the climate bill goes through, uh, that'll that'll change things somewhat. You know it's it's a, it is a real challenge to be living in this environment where. If tax revenues come in below estimates, austerity ahead. If they come in above estimates, can't save it, got to ship it all back to the rich people who pay them. So it's, it's budgeting in Oregon is it. a struggle.
0: Thank you very much for that great insight, Kari. It is really interesting that just how each state is handling their, their respective budgets and the the big question really does seem to be how to best allocate that money so that everybody else is benefiting and not just the wealthiest people so You've mentioned climate, Kari, and so I think that this would be a good time to move on to how each state has been handling climate action. It's been a top priority for Democratic leaders in the Pacific Northwest for many years now. And despite having majorities in Washington and Oregon, Democrats have struggled to make progress on climate change. After building bigger majorities in the last midterm, Democrats in Washington were able to unite behind a clean energy package in 2019 including a 100% clean energy bill. This year, the legislature went further with the Climate Commitment Act cap, an invest plan requested by Governor Inslee, and you touched on this crystal, and the Equity-Focused Heal Act. Kari, Democrats in Oregon have also run into some serious obstacles in trying to craft their own climate legislation, haven't they?
2: Yeah, in 2019, it was the clean energy jobs bill that Uh, caused the Republicans uh, to walk out of the legislature uh, and refuse to come back. And so despite those majorities, uh, without that supermajority quorum, we weren't able to make progress. This time around, we are making progress. And uh, it appears, not done deal yet, but it appears that there's a a somewhat scaled-down bill that's going to achieve passage. It is scaled down in some of its scope and some of the ways it impacts the power companies. It is, however, also... Uh, The most aggressive bill in the country in terms of a timeline for reducing to zero carbon emissions, the plan under the bill that appears to be moving forward, would bring Oregon to zero carbon emissions by the year 2040. And now that, you know, we'll we'll see what happens when we get there. That is only 20 years away, of course, by by now. But it is uh, an aggressive approach, even as it's scaling down some of its ambitions in, in other ways.
0: And then turning to you, Joan, climate and equity obviously aren't priorities for Idaho Republicans who control the legislative agenda in Boise. Were there any wins for clean energy in this session, or is the extent of the action pretty much confined to the local level?
1: It's entirely confined to the local level. And even then, it's a struggle because the Idaho legislature has adopted most of the ALEC agenda for climate change. That's the American Legislative Executive Council, the group that writes reactionary legislation and then shops it out to Republican legislators. So really, most local governments are pretty well constrained by state law, by the legislature, in what they can pursue, like plastic bag bans, something that simple can't do. So really, it's, it's, not even on the agenda for most of the state, which is extremely frustrating, extremely frustrating. It's, they want us to be living in 1950 and that's what they're enforcing.
0: I do want to turn to you, Crystal. You kind of went over your assessment of this year's climate legislation. What are some ways to get climate change past the local level and into a more into more of the conversations and dialogues that are happening among leadership.
3: It's really interesting. The situation that we're in, in Washington state as compared to Oregon or Idaho, where we have both chambers of our legislature controlled by Democrats, as well as our governor who, who prioritized at the very beginning of the session, introduced this legislation and said, you know, I, I am putting forth this package to be carried through in the legislature. This has my full support. So we have the luxury here with with that leadership to have a conversation that isn't focused on whether or not we should take climate action, but what climate action should be taken. And I think that does us all a favor because it's not like there is one thing that can be done and universal agreement around that. There are a broad suite of policies that can be put into place and there isn't universal agreement. One of the things that came out was talking about a just transition to a cleaner future, to cleaner fuels, to uh, less greenhouse gas emissions, meaning that with some prior packages and, and prior conversations, it's, well, people just need to like, you know, transform their fleets and people just need to live greener. When in reality, that's a lot more expensive for a lot of people. It doesn't enjoy the subsidies that oil-based and a lot of dirty fuels enjoy that carries through to the pricing and, and everything that flows from that. And so it's not trivial to say, well, just start doing things in a greener way. Just start doing things with fewer emissions because everyone from people in lower income communities to rural communities are saying, with what money what we found through that was was that those conversations if you actually engage those stakeholders can move forward in those elements so so one especially here passing the heal act which was championed in our legislature particularly by some members of color supported by excellent organizations like the front and centered coalition really prioritizes taking an environmental justice lens to all of the policy passed in the state to say, are we accounting for its impact on all communities? Are we accounting for how this this is going to impact people of color, low-income people, rural communities, to actually have to sit there and consider, are we leaving people behind? Are we mitigating negative impacts that may occur because of this? And to incorporate that in the, the legislative process and in ordinance processes locally in order to make sure that we help people move this along, because that helps us get further towards our goals. So I think in, in passing the HEAL Act, which was very helpful, that lens helps to make sure people have those conversations and engage those constituencies, because it's one thing to talk from Seattle for the rest of the state, and you being in Spokane, Kaya, certainly Probably have heard, you know, this is just a Seattle thing and people run against Seattle and there's resentment against Seattle and metropolitan areas for dictating this policy and speaking in a way that people in other areas can't necessarily identify with it. You know, the reality on the ground in a very dense metropolitan area is different than it is in a rural community. But if you say, hey, we're thinking about doing this, and maybe you aren't using the buzzwords that, you know, set people off and Immediately signal, you know, this is a socialist takeover to people who are used to hearing that, that they can say, you know, this actually makes financial sense. This is going to, you know, electrifying your fleet or, you know, using cleaner farming practices or, you know, electric vehicles have tangible benefits for everyone in those communities. So just speaking about those and then listening when they say, okay, but with what money and looking at as part of this package, we do have to help people make that transition. We all are helped when we do that. So I think getting out of, you know, some of the ivory towers and and progressive organizations quite frankly to get on the ground with people in communities and say we can all move forward together, let's talk and and say this is the goal. But let's all figure out how to take a route there together without leaving anyone behind. I think that's the key to moving forward. And there were certainly coalitions put together that were shocking to people that you could get rural constituencies and other constituencies where this hasn't necessarily been top of mind or a priority in communities of color, in lower income communities, where now they're saying, this is a top priority. This is immediately impactful to our health and the, and the welfare of our neighborhoods and communities. And, and that just makes the entire effort easier and stronger.
0: Thank you very much for that answer, Crystal. We are getting into kind of the the latter half of the podcast here. So I do want to move on to another big priority for Democrats this season. That is one that's received a lot of energy and attention, and that is police accountability. Uh, At the federal level, the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act is stuck in the U.S. Senate because of the filibuster and in the states there's been movement since Washington and Oregon have democratic trifectas there are votes there to adopt legislation changing the status quo so i want to start with uh, i want to start with kari what is the status of that cause in your state so far
2: yeah rather than trying to pass one single big police accountability bill in Oregon uh, what we're looking at here is actually a, a series of about uh, more than a dozen uh, different bills uh, that are all targeted at police oversight and accountability. The first of those uh, has, has now finally passed the Senate after passing the House and, uh, and is headed to the governor's desk. Uh, the Senate passed another four bills. Now we'll have to go back over to the House uh, for for work. What's interesting about this is that in Oregon, a lot of these bills, because they're fairly narrowly ca- Crafted individually, they're actually passing with broad bipartisan support in in many cases. They, you know, they're they're again um, sort of, again small bore things, but put together they're a big package. They are, for example, there's a shift to the unlawful assembly law, so that if people don't disperse when officers order them to disperse, police are not required to arrest them under existing law. They were required. To arrest them, and, and, and obviously protesters would, would say we weren't doing anything. We're trying to get out of the way. People were, you know, it was too big of a crowd or whatever. And cops would say we we required by law to arrest you. And so that that's one of the bills, for example, that's moving forward. You know, there's uh, a bill to prohibit uh, local law enforcement agencies from receiving military surplus equipment. You know, that's another bill that's, that's moving forward. There's you know bills require law enforcement to immediately request. Uh, medical assistance for a restrained person experiencing respiratory or cardiac difficulty, essentially a George Floyd type thing. You can't stand there and and at minimum watch him face respiratory difficulty. If you're a law enforcement officer standing by, you have to call for medical Uh, assistance, you know, training on background checks and crowd management, uh, requirements for identification during uh, crowd management activities, lots of little small things. And as I said, they're they're mostly moving through with bipartisan support, which is an interesting uh, dynamic that's happening here in Oregon that we're not seeing back in Washington, D.C.
0: And then Crystal, did you want to respond to Kari or follow up with anything regarding how Washington has been handling this legislation?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of legislation that's similar to what Kari mentioned in Oregon. So here we pass bills banning chokeholds, neck restraints, the use of no-knock warrants, which have been very problematic, limiting the use of military equipment and tear gas, uh, which we've seen employed several times here in defiance of, of local orders. So that state ordinance really helps to codify that across the board, requiring uh, you know the duty to report if officers see another officer. Officer breaking the law, acting unethically, they are now mandated to report that and can face disciplinary action themselves if they don't do that. And strengthening the process for decertifying officers, there's a big problem with officers, you know, committing, you know, sometimes egregious act uh, acts of misconduct. There's an excellent crosscut series on this, and then being able to move to a different department sometimes with that not appearing on their record, sometimes with just that record not being checked if they're not decertified they can be hired in a neighboring jurisdiction and then can go on to to repeat same types of offenses, which has happened here in Washington state. So strengthening that certainly helps. And then establishes, we established a new office of independent investigations to investigate all police uses of deadly force, as well as prior killings, if new evidence comes to light, which there wasn't really a venue for doing that. So those police accountability bills were a big step forward and more progress was, was made on that. You know, again, a lot with the help and momentum from a lot of the newer legislators to push that through. But but again, we saw some bipartisan support on some of those. Certainly the push from community to pass those was strong. And that engagement with the legislature was felt to a greater degree than we had before. And then tacking on that just in terms of the voters, the vote suppression effort, Washington, fortunately, did a lot of action and work on that previously with vote by mail you know efforts happening we were one of the first states to implement statewide vote by mail um, did more to expand ballot drop box availability automatic registration for people just when they register for their driver's license or they turn 18 has been very big and huge restoring the rights of felons people who've committed felonies um, to have their voting rights automatically restored instead of having to go through a laborious process To get that reinstated so a lot of those efforts have have helped stem that tide also and and in our elections have helped to enfranchise more people to make sure that the laws that we're able to pass and the votes that we're taking truly represent the people and not just a you know privileged subset as has been in the past and so that stands in stark contrast to washington dc and a lot of the Republican-controlled state legislatures moving in the other direction. And I'm sure Joan can speak to that.
0: I was just about to say, Joan, I don't imagine any police accountability bills have passed in Idaho.
1: (laughs) No, no. Um, You know, the, the larger problem we have with police killings are of animals, which, of course, is a big deal. Somebody's dog gets shot, but... I think there's probably a lot of low-level harassment happening by cops in minority communities, particularly in the farming communities where we have large Hispanic populations. I think there's a lot of harassment there that we are not hearing about. There aren't out-and-out killings by cops, so there's that. But you know, by all means, we're, we're not immune from the need for reform. It's just that those things aren't bubbling up to the surface here. Voter suppression is less of an issue than voter control, I suppose, because we don't have large communities that vote Democratic, there isn't an effort to suppress the vote here. However, what the legislature has done twice now, and this year they succeeded, is keeping citizens from being able to speak out through the citizens initiative process. And in fact, there's two suits now before our Supreme Court over the legislation that they passed and Governor Little signed this year to make putting a citizen's initiative on the ballot essentially impossible, um, creating such high hurdles that it just can't happen. They've done this twice before. They did it after 2012 when voters rejected two very controversial education bills that were put through laws, the Luna laws, to privatize education, to cut, teacher salaries, those things didn't go over well with voters, so we overturned them. In 2012, the legislature came back, heightened the requirements for what it would take to get a ballot initiative on, and then in 2016, Idaho, Reclaim Idaho, a a new progressive group of Idahoans, born and bred, fighting back, got Medicaid, on the ballot, a Medicaid expansion to take the Obamacare Medicaid expansion in Idaho. Got it on the ballot, passed hugely with more than 60% across the state. So that brought the legislature back the next year trying to curtail that, trying to put up all of these new hurdles again. Little, Governor Brad Little uh, vetoed that bill. This year they came back with some modifications and he signed it. So at this point, Um, That's something that's going to court. Our former Supreme Court Justice, Jim Jones, joined with Reclaim Idaho in saying, what you're trying to do is unconstitutional. This is against what the state constitution is allowing you to do. We'll see if the current Supreme Court agrees.
0: I want to kind of go back a little bit to what you were mentioning about how Idaho, in general, was, uh, was handling police accountability I think that you said that it's not that the need isn't there. It's just that that's Mm -hmm. not a mainstream conversation. Is that kind of an accurate assessment? Very much so. What do you think needs to be done in order to make it a national conversation the way that it is in Washington and Oregon and that it needs to be?
1: I think if it happens, it's going to happen in a bad way. I think it's going to be an Ammon Bundy kind of style confrontation with the cops. And I think it's going to be the white supremacists who are yelling police brutality. It's, it's going to be the reverse of what we're seeing in the rest of the country. And I I fear what it could mean for the people of this state, for law enforcement in this state, frankly. I think I think that they have... It's a very armed state, and I think that law enforcement in this state have valid concern with some of the people they're going to end up confronting. So it's an entirely different conversation that we're having in this state versus Washington or Oregon, entirely different. Um, We've had strong Black Lives Matter protests. We've, Boise in particular, and pretty much every county in the state, did see a response after the George Floyd killing. There were demonstrations, larger and smaller, and they were remarkably peaceful, remarkably calm. There were white supremacists that showed up, but they were not large groups, and the police did a good job of keeping that under control. So the tensions here are very, very different. And part of it is in that we don't have a tradition of police brutality, particularly in a city like Boise. It could change. It could definitely change. The culture here, I've got to say the cop culture in Boise is better than it was in Portland when I lived there and better than it is in Portland now. Very much less racist. But again, because we have such small people of color populations in the state... It, there aren't the levels of tension there.
0: And ultimately we would want things such as police accountability to be introduced in order to prevent something horrible happening rather than ha- something horrible causing those things to be, it's things to be the other way around.
1: Right. No, I, I really do see more of an opportunity for an Ammon Bundy type group. Ammon Bundy is going to be running for governor, by the way. Everybody remembers the Nevada standoff with the Bundy family. We have Ammon here. He's not registered to vote in Idaho, but he's decided he wants to be governor. And he's very good at fomenting trouble. In fact, some of his acolytes are doing that right now in Oregon, in the Klamath Basin. That's that's where we're going to see problems for law enforcement in Idaho from, from that
0: group. So we did cover a lot of good ground in this episode. There's a lot to discuss. And we could, again, easily, easily, I, if I could devote hours of time to any one of these topics, I, I, I would. But I think that now would be a good time to transition into my final question before we wrapped up. What is one action that our listeners, especially listeners in Idaho, can take to advance a progressive cause that needs a boost in your home state right now?
1: I think this is something probably any Idahoan who would be listening would already be doing, but talk to your neighbors. Don't be cowed. Don't be afraid. Go out and find your community because it is out there. It's very quiet. It's intimidated. It might feel lost, but it's there join your democratic party become a precinct chair we have hardly any just do a small thing to be a presence in your community for democratic values because it is at this point small d democratic values and big d yeah
0: (laughs) it's and it's not it's not a small thing i you know talk to your neighbors join an organization it sounds simple enough but actually putting it into practice is is great action. And I think it makes more impact than even than I think a lot of people realize. I want to offer the same question to uh, Kari next. What is one action that our listeners can take to advance a progressive cause that needs a boost in your state, regardless of whether or not they're a citizen of Oregon? Yeah,
2: look, one of the great things about about being resident of a smaller state, you know, I went to college in California and loved love here being in my home state of Oregon, uh, is that, you know, you're, you can reach out to your legislators and, and you can talk to them, you know, unless you're completely off your rocker. They're going to, they're going to take your phone call. They're going to be willing to have coffee with you. So whatever issue is important to you, uh, whatever you want to share with your legislator, you know, pull, pull your ideas together, make the phone call, ask to have coffee with your legislator, uh, and, and you're going to be heard. Now, if that conversation is happening in a – if you're if your legislator is a, a Republican in a red place, it might be a bit more challenging uh, than if you're talking to a, a – as a progressive to a Democratic legislator um, in a blue place. Uh, that might be more fun. Uh, but, you know, that's that's the brilliant thing about, about these small places is that you can be heard and you can make an impact. I think a lot of us, you know, spend all of our time thinking about the national level. It's happening on Capitol Hill. You know, you listen to Rachel Maddow and you – you want to think about those things, but the place to have a real impact as a, as a person is is right here at the local level, whether that's your local elected official, city council, city hall, uh, or your state legislator. They're going to listen to you because, you know, you're a voter. They know that you have friends, you have people to talk to, you know, they're all trying to make friends uh, and, and win influence. And part of that is by listening to you. So get in there, be part of the process. America is run by those who show up.
0: And, uh, and finally, I want to turn to you, Crystal. What is an action that our listeners can take to advance a progressive cause in in your home state, any cause that needs a a boost that isn't getting what it needs?
3: You know, I want to say amen to what Kari said. He's absolutely right. I think that, that people are used to feeling powerless. And I don't know that that is, you know, unintentional. But we we look at the national conversation and the things that are happening out of Congress, and that gets all the coverage and takes all the airtime, and it's infuriating, and you feel like you can't do anything about it. The opposite, as he just said, is true at a local level. And I would even suggest one level even more local, your city council, your county council. Go and meet with them. It is not an exaggeration when I say I have seen legislation be introduced city ordinances be introduced because one person made a phone call to their city council person i have seen entire city councils change their public statements on on issues because four people showed up to a city council meeting if you get involved on a local level so much is overlooked and so few people engage at that level that when just a few people do they take notice They take that as a signal as this is a big issue. And right now, a few other people are doing it, and literally only a few in just about every city that you're in that's listening to this, that if you go and do that, you can change policy on the local level. And people often think of, okay, there's this big transformational policy. It's got to start at a statewide level or a national level. $15 an hour in this country started in the city right next to me, SeaTac, Washington, a small city. And they decided to do a local ordinance to put $15 an hour as the minimum wage. It passed there then it passed in Seattle and then it passed everywhere else in the country that's how policy starts in this country it's at the local level and when you look at how different a city like Boise can be to a city like I'm in Kent Washington to you know think of all of the different cities and how different they are that speaks to how much control cities have to shape who they are what they do and what they look like and you can make that impact and I think even if you're in if you're a progressive person with red city council people and they're conservative, you can still have those conversations because everyone's still living in that same reality on the ground with many issues, not saying all of them are going to go well, but you would be surprised. How many might? And it just starts with creating that dialogue. So I would encourage people to find out what their city council people's names are and to call them and comment about an issue that you care about. Go to a meeting, listen to what they're talking about, and then give your opinion in the in the public comment section. That changes policy and it starts there and then spreads across the country. So I, I highly encourage that because I just cannot tell you how much power you actually have to make that difference on the local level.
0: Yeah. And, and like Kari said, you, you know, it, it's, uh, it's all about showing up. And I think that that dialogue even starts with conversations like Joan said, even conversations between your neighbors, because if they're not being reached by the right information, then you kind of have to be the vehicle for the information that's going to facilitate that change. Wonderful thoughts from all three of you. Thank you very much for uh, for joining us on this first episode of PNW Currents. Thank you to our listeners for joining us with our guests, Crystal Fitcher, Carrie Chisholm, and Joan McCarter. We hope that you all enjoyed the conversation and hopefully gained some knowledge that you can apply to your own advocacy. you enjoyed this episode, stay tuned for the release of our next episode in July. We'll be talking about our region's progress towards getting Cascadia vaccinated with three public health experts. To learn more about the work that NPI does, be sure to check out our website at nwprogressive.org. Again, that is nwprogressive.org. And there you will find a transcript of this episode and the PNW Currents Archive, as well as our poll findings, House Bill Tracker, Elections Hub, and our publications like the Cascadia Advocate and in Brave. We will see you next time. For NPI, I'm Kaya Burnt.